and welcome to the Rainbow Skyline Podcast, one of the many great shows on the Athletic Podcast Network. My name is Nick Kosmider. I'm the Athletics beat writer for the Denver Nuggets, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by John Hollinger, our Athletic MBA analyst, former Executive Vice President of the Memphis Grizzlies, and uh, one of the four four thinkers of uh, basketball analytics dating all the way back to 1996. Um, you, you know his work well. John, thanks thanks so much for for joining us today. Well, it's great, great to be on. I uh, wish, wish we could be uh, doing this together in Denver, but su- such are these times. Yeah. You know, and before we get going, I just, I just wanted to give a special thanks to, um, to, to everybody who has stuck with us, all of our subscribers out there um, who are continuing to read and support our work and, and, and also all these podcasts. We, we really appreciate it. We know you have a lot of choices right now as you stay at home, and we've just been uh, really appreciative of all, of all of our subscribers if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, head to theathletic.com slash Rainbow Skyline to get a great low-cost deal on a subscription. Sign up now. You never know when these deals end. Okay, so John, I, I wanted to talk to you. That you had this great piece at The Athletic today. It's, it's do-over week at The Athletic. We've talked to uh, all of our writers from across all sports are kind of examining some things in the in the history of the teams that they cover about what sh- what choice they made, whether it be a draft or a trade or just maybe an in-game choice uh, that they would want to have another shot at. And, and you wrote about your time with, with the Grizzlies as a lead exec there um, in the t- 2014 draft. What if we had drafted Nikola Jokic? I'm curious as I read this piece of like, how often do these do these thoughts pop up for executives? Is it is it just as often as it happens for for fans where you just, you know, you just sit there and say, huh, I wonder what that would have looked like. How often does that come up? More often, I think, because on the exec side, you have a better idea of the things that didn't happen but were possible. And I think I think for fans, that's hard. Like, fans can't sit there and really be like, oh, what if we had traded for so-and-so because they had no idea if the guy was even available. Right. But we do, you know? <laughs> we, so we know, we know exactly what the, the possibilities were or what the alternatives were of maybe a, a move that we regret. And so I, I think it's actually... From an exec side, it's actually uh, easier to play that game, and you probably end up doing it to yourself more. Yeah, and the the thing, the other part of that that's interesting is you you say in the piece that you guys went into the 2014 draft, just had the 22nd overall pick. Uh, you get called from the Jazz that they that they were looking to kind of uh, trade the 35th pick, so so early early second round pick. Um, when you go into the draft, do you already have the scenario in your mind that's like that you're planning for, hey, we might potentially add a pick and then what what kind yeah. of scenarios would be? How does that kind of work? So Yeah, that we- I, sure, sure. I didn't really address this in the article, but yeah, we we liked this draft. And so we were looking at scenarios to get more picks in it. And we knew we were um, we, we were probably not going to be trading a, a first round pick. Uh, but that if, if we had opportunities to, we actually were looking more at scenarios to buy a second round pick because that was, that was the more, uh, common and easier way to do it. We thought we'd been talking to some teams about that. Um, we've been talking about some other stuff just about moving up and down the board, just the typical stuff you always, you always have in that day, but none of it was that hot or that serious but yeah we we definitely were looking to get another pick we thought we thought it was a deep draft and in retrospect we were right unfortunately we the grizzlies themselves didn't benefit as much from it as we might have hoped um but it, it, it did end up being a very deep draft 
so when when that when Utah calls, was that does bef- that before the draft night started? Was that during the first round? And it then- was dur- it was during the first round. Okay. Yeah. And then what, so yeah. what is that process? Then you go back to kind of where you had, you'd been in the war room, you had planned these scenarios and is it, is it a lot of people giving quick input? Does it get kind of chaotic? Yeah. Cause, cause, cause you have your whole staff in one room, right. Yeah. In the, in the war room. So we knew that this was something we were interested in. And so we had a, it was a very quick conversation to get to yes on our end. And then, uh, and then we called them back and, and said we were in and we'd do it. But, you know, all this stuff on draft night, though, comes out of conversations that you've already been having. Usually it's rarely completely out of the blue. Like you're usually talking to teams ahead of time and saying, look, you know, we might be in the market for another pick, you know, and just you just kind of giving teams like a hazy outline of your blueprint so that they know to call you if they hit a situation Uh, because time because time is limited, especially when they're on the clock. So you want to make sure they're calling you if they have something you want. When when you guys were in that spot, and you obviously Jokic, you mentioned he was the number one player on the stash list. Um, yeah, had the decision already been made that you weren't going to go the stash route? Did you reconsider it again as that came up? Um, obviously, those are decisions you have to make so quickly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we we reconsidered it very briefly, but for us, the stash list existed more if the if the list of players we liked was exhausted. Right. Okay. Well, and, and you know that the part of it that you you also find interesting within this is that you know Tim Conley has been you know he's been transparent in saying listen we got we got really lucky with Nikola Jokic right because he was he was the forty first pick for a reason you mentioned it a little bit in here about the Nike Hoops Summit um, mm-hmm. what, what what did you like and then but what were also the things that really were kind of keeping teams giving him that second round grade and and giving people pause I think the biggest thing was was just people didn't know what he could uh, do defensively and, and whether he would just get abused and pick and rolls. Uh, you know, he's, I mean, you know, Nick, he's never been in great shape. And uh, certainly even at the time as a, as a younger guy, he wasn't. And, uh, and so there, there were concerns about how he would move laterally against NBA athletes and, and, uh, and, and whether he could really play the position defensively, the way the game was changing. And then at the offensive end, he was skilled, but it wasn't like his skill was still coming into its own. So he wasn't doing some of the things you see him do now, even though he showed little bits and hints of, of the feel he has now, he didn't shoot the ball nearly as well. Um, and he, he just hadn't got to the, gotten to the point, I guess with confidence or whatever, with the, the ball and doing some of the kinds of passes he can do now. Um, so, so it was, it was different. He he didn't have a great week. Um, he they were doing a lot of pick and pop with him, and he didn't shoot the ball well. Um, and so a lot of people left that with him because people were talking about him being in the first round. A lot of people walked away from there and moved him down their boards. Yeah, you know it's interesting. The other day I was doing a piece in which I was kind of going back and looking at um, either the high school highlight tapes or the overseas highlight tapes of current players on the Nuggets roster. And as I dug into Jokic's highlights from his time with Mega in Serbia, I, you know, I turned it on expecting to be like, oh, there's, there's going to be all these amazing passes that just sort of like um, gave you an idea of who he was. And you really, like you said, there was some of it, there was certainly some of it there um, that in, in hindsight, you can say, okay, I see where that started to be a thing. But 
his NBA tapes are so much more um, versatile and so much more, I think, um, exciting in, in the way that yeah. he plays. What is it about you think that uh, the M- is it just the NBA style of play that can bring it out of some of these guys? Um, because you're right, he didn't. I didn't see that much of that when I went back and watched his old tapes. I think the the floor being more open in the NBA probably helped him in the in the types of passes he likes to make. Uh, but I also just think he got a lot better. It just you know, it, right? That's the thing yeah. that happens, right? Yeah. He just he just grew in his feel with the game. I think people underestimated that he didn't have as much basketball experience as some of these other Serbian players that come up uh, because his, his background was different. You know, he was, he yep. was riding horses, right. Until, <laughs> until they were like, dude, you're going to break the horse. You're like 300 pounds. Like <laughs> yeah. stop. It's pretty much it. He had to stop being a jockey. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I'm always curious about from an executive standpoint is you, you talk about these things, these, these do overs here and, but how much do you have to, how much is it a balance of saying, okay, we learned from what happened in that draft and maybe what we would have done differently, but not allowing it to fully completely change the way that you have your process. Like, is that a balance of both learning from kind of how things went in prior drafts, but also kind of trying to stay true to who you are, if if that makes sense? Well, I think the thing we should have learned is that, um, is that teams can overreact, I think, to body weight. Um, Because we saw with Marcus All, and it was the same thing. It was a big center with tremendous feel, and but the people were concerned about how heavy he was and you know, would he be able to move and whatnot. And usually you can get these guys into shape, especially if they're if especially if they're good enough to play, like they'll automatically get into a certain level of shape just because 2000 NBA minutes is going to do that to your body. And so so I think a lot of these like guys like that have maybe been punished a little too unfairly. You know, our colleague Sherwood Strauss says fat is potential in disguise. <laughs> and uh, I think that's I think that sort of applies here. The, the other thing I always um, take away and I always hit myself in the head over is that the bigs that can pass, they usually figure it out. They usually have just enough innate sense for the game that they can figure out the rest. Did it change the way that you guys studied overseas players at all, or or was it was it pretty much um, business as usual in terms of like finding where you would evaluate guys? For example, did you use more of of overseas tape, or did you stick to kind of some of these summits? Did it change anything in that regard from a scouting perspective? I, d- I don't think so. I mean, I saw Jokic play overseas after the hoop summit. You did, okay. Um, and yeah, he actually it was crazy because he. Um, that you know this one in retrospect this one moment where you should have been like oh wow like this is <laughs> this is a sign of the guy he's going to become he took a defensive rebound at the end of the half in this game I'm watching and you know how he is he just kind of lopes up the court you know with the ball it doesn't look like he's going that fast even though he kind of is and uh it's right before the buzzer and he just pulls up from half court and launches uh it, it was really like a, you know what I mean? It wasn't like he did like throw it with one hand. It wasn't like a heave. It was like almost a jump shot and, and he made it. And it was like, wow. Like that was kind of like, like, was that lucky or was that super impressive? And you go, you go back in retrospect. It was like, okay, that, that was a sign that he might be more skilled than, than people thought right there. If you're bored in the house, bored in the house, bored, why not spend some time on yourself? Our sponsor today, Manscaped, is here to make sure you're well-groomed above and below the belt. 
Manscaped promotes clean hygiene when it comes to shaving thanks to their Lawnmower 3.0. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming. While you are probably looking for new things to do at home, why not make manscaping a part of your routine? The Perfect Package 3.0 kit comes with a new and improved Lawnmower 3.0 waterproof cordless body trimmer and a ton of other liquid formulations to round out your manscaping routine. Do yourself a favor and always use the right tools for the job. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code DEATHLETIC at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code DEATHLETIC. And for a limited time, subscribers get not one, but two free gifts. The Shed Travel Bag, a $39 value, and the patented high-performance anti-chafing Manscaped Boxer Briefs. So go to manscaped.com today and use code DEATHLETIC. In switching gears a little bit, this if if you were preparing for this this draft now with the way this season is going, um, mm-hmm. or or the uncertainty of whether the season will continue and, and therefore when the draft will be, we didn't have an NCAA tournament. What would how much do you think this is changing from conversations you've had the process for executives? Tim Conley told me he, we might be more prepared than we've ever ever been, but it's obviously in a different way. What what would just be your kind of way that you were looking at this draft right now? I think it's going to be really good because I do think teams are spending a lot of time on video. They've had enough time to video chat with these guys and they've had, um, as on the front office side, the draft comes up so quickly after the season. And usually after the season, you're dealing with a lot of other things too. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, some teams are turning over coaching staff. Some teams, there's always, uh, people in the front office or training staff or, scouting side or whatever that have contracts and hiring new people and whatnot. And, uh, so you're dealing with a lot of stuff and to have a window like this where you can just spend a good six to eight weeks and really think about nothing but the draft, uh, is a luxury. And I'm hopeful that it results in really good, smart drafting. Uh, because I, I think that's, that, that's one of the things is that there's so much, of the noise of everything that's going on, uh, that, that it can be tough to really hunker down sometimes, um, on the, on the draft and really, um, you get to a point where you can hunker down on certain players because you know, they're the ones you're likely to draft, but to really go through the whole draft one through 60 and, and really go over everybody in a really thorough way. Um, and not just with the scouting staff, but with the whole, front office that that's a luxury that just doesn't exist usually so i'm really interested to see what comes out of this yeah tim Connolly, when i had him as a guest on the podcast a couple weeks ago and he said we've given um kind of each you know top member of our staff like five to seven guys to just really dig into um at, mm-hmm. at various spots in the draft um you know dig into their background dig into their video you know interviews with them if that's a possible setup you're saying that's that kind of like attention to it and that sort of thoroughness isn't isn't typically available just because of the time crunch it's the time crunch and then partly it's self-inflicted too because we what do we do we go to the combine and then we go to europe and then we come back and then we have players in for workouts so we're dealing with that and then we um uh are looking ahead to free agency, which is right after the draft. Like there's, there's all this other self-inflicted noise too, that, that, that piles on top of it. So I think doing exactly what you just described is an ideal best practice that is, that is really hard to put in effect in the, in the construct of the way the calendar works right now. You know, last kind of thing I wanted to touch on John was that obviously 
this this week is is sort of a time where the NBA has said to teams in cities where local and state governments have lifted some of the or eased some of the restrictions rather. Um, those those franchises can open up their practice facilities with some uh, pretty stringent restrictions. The Nuggets are one of those teams that will open its doors to the Pepsi Center to uh, two players for workouts beginning Friday. If you were if you were still in that executive spot right now, how would you what would be your kind of biggest, I guess, concerns and, and biggest points of emphasis as this was going? And, and what do you just think it's going to look like? Man, there are so many. And so many just little things that you think about just in terms of a practice facility. Like think about this, like for most players and a lot of teams, um, it's uh, finger fingerprint entry. You know, they put their finger on the thing and that's what opens the door. So like you're really going to do that (laughs) these days, right? So um, just the simplest thing from how they get into the door, right? It is something that you have to think about. Um, you know, they, I guess they put a protocol out there for for cleaning the balls, but there's, you know, how how are you gonna ha- how are you gonna deal with coaches and different players and the strength staff and just there it runs the whole gamut from a, from A to Z of how do you deal with this completely unique situation in a way that prevents um, anything from spreading and. You know, it's it's at least something like I guess they've dealt with this a little on this side in terms of like especially on the like the strength and, and conditioning side in terms of like MRSA and some other infectious type stuff where they, they've had some protocols in place. Right. Um, so they can probably build off of that a little bit. But it's just so much uh, larger and broader. I mean, you you know, you probably want to think about how, like, how is the air circulating in your, in your building? Like stuff you've never thought about in a million years is all of a sudden like very front and center. And, uh, and for every organization, it's going to be a little unique because every facility is a little different and the state rules are a little different and the state of the epidemic is a little different. Well, it's interesting too, because not every player for every team is, is in right now in the city where they're, where those teams play. And, you know, part of, I think, why the NBA wanted to do it this way was as like, you know, whether it be outside basketball courts or gyms are going to start to open up, this is a way of uh, creating a safer place for players to go potentially. But you mentioned just all that you have to go through to get up shots. I almost, part of me wonders whether players are going to, until the whole team is back in and and, and they're being able to do more than just shoot, whether players are just going to want to opt for some of the easier routes. I mean, you look at Instagram, there's already players who are who are seemingly in, whether it's their old high school or college gyms, getting their workouts in in that way. So I, I wonder how many players, when it's just this kind of shooting one, you know, individual workouts are really going to take advantage of it. I think it's going to be a bigger deal for some of the younger guys, actually. I mean, I know the situation we had in Memphis was a lot of the younger players lived in condo buildings a couple blocks from the arena. Um, And I I don't know, maybe a similar thing with with the Nuggets guys, the way it's set up there uh, with Lodo being right there. And uh, and so for them, a lot of them don't really if they stayed in town, they don't have access to to hoops. So it's it's a way for it's a way for them to get access safely or somewhat safely, certainly more safely than going to 24 hour fitness or whatever. So I, I do think, I do think for that reason, you, you will see some players take advantage of it. I'm interested to see how many, I, I think you raise, raise a fair question. I, I, how, 
how of of the 15, you know, or 17, I guess with two ways guys in the team, how many will really be going into the facility every day? Will it be five? Will it be 12 or who knows? Yeah. Um, I, I, I'll get you out of here on this, John. Uh, what, what is your level of, um, I, I guess confidence given now what, what we've known since the NBA paused on March 11th, uh, almost two full months ago now. Um, and, and just within conversations you've had, uh, with people across the league, uh, what's your confidence level that, that we will see, we will see a season this year. We will see some, some iteration of be it the rest of the regular season, uh, or, or just the playoffs. I'm going to say it's two to one that we have a season. In other words, like 67%. Yes. 33%. No, I think there, there are really strong financial interests for having a season. So if they can safely have a season, I think they absolutely will, even if they have to push it back quite a ways. Uh, but at, at some point they're just going to have to say uncle if it can't be done. And so I, the, that, that's where I put it right now. And it depends on obviously a bunch of factors that are completely outside the league's control. So it's, it's, uh, it's a waiting game. All right. Well, John, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time. You can catch John's pod- podcast. It's the Hollinger Duncan NBA show. You can find that on, on Apple or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also read all of his great work at theathletic.com slash NBA. He's paired with beat writers across our network to give really great insights from a front front office perspective about uh, what teams will be facing uh, this offseason when it does when it does come through. Uh, so that's all for this week. Thanks again to all the listeners and subscribers. If you are a subscriber, you know what to do. Hit that five-star rating and give us a, a review too. Uh, until next time, thanks for stopping by. Awesome. All right. That was awesome. All thanks good. so much, John. Yeah, man, John. Hey, no problem. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. Take thanks, care. guys. All right. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. <clears throat>